Louise Erdrich is well known for her many books, including Love Medicine, the 1984 National Book Critics Circle award-winning book. This and later works focus on the theme of justice and the ways in which Native Americans struggle to obtain it. She's always written about the Native American community she learned about in her childhood, and her early works document those lives of Native Americans. But with her latest work, The Night Watchman, she's based the character of the protagonist, Thomas, on an actual member of her family. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. In her novel, The Night Watchman, Louise Erdrich's protagonist, Thomas, keeps watch in a factory while he also tends to the affairs of the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa people as their tribal chair. This character is based on Erdrich's maternal grandfather. In the 1950s, he held that overnight job as a watchman while also having to tussle with the U.S. senator who is trying to terminate his tribe, moving the members off the land that was reserved for them. We also follow 19-year-old Patrice, a smart young woman who's determined to find out what happened to her sister who's gone missing. Thomas and Patrice live in this impoverished reservation community along with young Chippewa boxer Wood Mountain and his mother, Juggy Blue, her niece and Patrice's best friend, Valentine, and Stack Barnes, the white high school math teacher and boxing coach who is hopelessly in love with Patrice. Louise Erdrich joins us to discuss her most recent novel, The Night Watchman. So I'm going to ask you um, some questions about the Night Watchman, and maybe a good place to start the conversation is, would you provide a little bit of, of context about a few things? We're in 1953, North Dakota, Turtle Mountain, which is a real place, and, and your mother's from there. Um, but I right. wonder, could you explain the idea of this um, House concurrent resolution that's at the heart of this work, this so-called emancipation bill. All right, Yvette, if we start out with this, people are going to turn off the radio. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, it's And it's the piece I find the most fascinating. But <laughs> That's because I get the sense now with you saying that, that you may be a history nerd. I Because this am. is what it's... Oh, I'm thrilled. I was hoping, you know... This is partly what the book is for, was for people who get excited when they find pieces of unexplored history. And it's not, but it's also for people who who want to connect with these two characters, mm -hmm. Pixie or Patrice mm -hmm. and Thomas. So I wrote it with two characters in mind so you could have, you know, your connection with one or the other. Um and also, this, what seems now a bizarre bill, or it did seem, now it seems per perfectly plausible in the light of the out-of-body out experience we sometimes have when turning on the news. So this bill, which was a House, the House Concurrent Resolution, the House Concurrent Resolution 108, turned into a bill which was called the Termination Bill. What this bill did was declare 
null and void all treaties made with Native Americans since the beginning of time in this country where, you know, the treaty-making days. So these treaties were the, um, always couched in the language that they would last as long as the grass grows, as long as the river flows, right? So they were in per- perpetuity. And what seemed sudden, but actually had been a long process, what seemed sudden was this bill suddenly passed. It was when President House and Senate were all under Republican control, and they just blasted this bill through. You're suddenly terminated. Um, You can move off your reservation. You can go somewhere else. And it it was uh, passed in July, I think. And in two or three months, people had to decide how to defend themselves. In that era, a great many people did not speak English, but spoke their traditional language. So this this bill was unfathomable, and partly because it was couched in like the, the sort of um, Orwellian language, we are going to emancipate you, this is going to make you equal, this is, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so people then read the bill and thought, no, we are emancipated. We, we, this takes away our rights and we've got to fight it somehow. But how? Mm-hmm. The thing, too, that's so interesting about, I mean, just, yes, I'm a history nerd, but just the, the fact of that story that's the pall of it that's hanging over uh, Thomas and, and his family, but the way it, it amps up the tension with Thomas, who's dealing with so many other things, but then there's this huge responsibility that he has because, just because of the idea of it. I mean, even if they can look that far ahead to see what the implications will be for them, it is just this this weight on him, and it's it's so palpable from the very beginning of the novel. Well, that's where I think my experience. My grandfather is the person that Thomas is based on, Patrick Gorno. And that's where my own memories and my own love of my grandfather and his letters come in. Because I can see how much he was doing. And I know from knowing him that he was absolutely and utterly devoted to his people and his family. And that his identity meant everything to him. It was, um, I mean, it's who he was. So this bill coming as it did to absolutely destroy everything that people had been trying to build on the reservation was, first it was a shock, and he was able to absorb the shock and figure out what was happening And then he was able to cobble together a coalition of people, native and non-native, to fight the bill. And that's what I thought was incredibly interesting about his life and remarkable to read his letters and see the weight 
that this put on him, and yet how he labored under the weight and came out um, and and eventually went up against Congress. I, I can't believe he really did it. He did it. Wow. It's an, it's an amazing story. And he was a night watchman, wasn't he, in, in the plant? He absolutely was. And a few of these details that are in the book are from his letters because he was a, a night watchman by night and chairman by day. He was having meetings and working and writing letters all through the night, but all, th- all through the day as well. So he, his exhaustion is palpable in the letters, and he makes light of it all the time. But this moment where he sees a little boy on the bandsaw, mm-hmm. that was real. That was in the letter. That was Roderick. That, that became Roderick, yeah. That was in the letter. That's, that's an incredible detail. Yeah, yeah. No, I think about his his level of anxiety and exhaustion. And, oh, and then the part about him dropping a sandwich. Oh, yes. And then eating a, you know, eating a sandwich and looking down at the empty, at his empty hand and thinking, when did I eat that sandwich? All those things that I think any of us in a state of exhaustion can identify with. This was what his life was like all the time. So intense. And what's interesting about him, too, is um, the, so so we, I, I know he's based on your grandfather, but it's this backstory mm-hmm. of Thomas. Um, so we sort of get to know what he was like as a younger man. Um, you know, this sort of taste and this fear uh, that he has for alcohol. Um, he's a he's a family man. He's really doing his best as a parent. Uh, and the children are also memorable, Charlotte and Fee and Wade. And but the the pressure of this um, this hearing seems to be uh, something that's that's just um, everywhere with him. And yet he's a very hopeful character to me. He loves his wife. Yeah. He's trying to be a good father. He's very engaged and he's very involved. And he has concerns about some of the other characters and Patrice and what she's going through. Um, and he's also someone who's battling these old demons, like this this ghost that's that's sort of haunting him and, and mm-hmm. then the ghosts that he sees in the stars. It's, he is such a... And even though the, the chapters that focus on him are, are alternating. It's almost like we need that break or that beat. Um, yeah. And yeah. then and then we we see Thomas's name coming up in the next chapter, and we're ready to dive in again. He he's just so compelling. You know, it's sort of like well, you know, well Patrice. You know, she she's got this uh, kind of love story, and she's doing this kind of you know detective work, and she's really interesting, and she's this feisty girl, but. There's just something about Thomas that I was all in about. He was an extremely... I'm so... Yeah. Actually, that makes me extremely happy. I think the hardest thing to write is a story of a decent person. And that's who he is, and that's who he was. And when I um, I started it, I thought, I you know, there's no... 
he did not have some sort of deep, dark side. He struggled with alcohol, but that was pretty much normal, you know. He, um, and he conquered. But his decency was, 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 um, it was hard to write because there was no real inner conflict there. He just was a good man. Can you imagine that that's a, a problem in writing, writing the story of a decent person? But he's, he does have idiosyncrasies and, you know, just the thing about getting locked out at work and it's, he's so human. He's so absolutely yeah. human. And it's almost like the problem of representing his community um, in this very daunting space is enough because I feel like that that alone is a, a he's a decent man but that that alone just colors the narrative with this problem that it's just a, a sort of inherent conflict we know he's struggling um yeah yes. he's he's just uh, unforgettable um and I but I also love when his story converges with Patrice's um where did Patrice, I love the name, and I love that your grandfather's name was Patrick, but where did Patrice come from? Well, Patrice is actually my grandfather's name. I see. That's yeah. a, um, so I gave it to, to her. Love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and we have a lot of Patrice, Patrices in our family who are named after my grandfather. But he went by Patrick. It was just more, you know, he could go by either one. Uh, she, where did she come from? I That I do not know. I started, after I wrote a little bit about Thomas, I, it was as though I was watching my hand move on the page. And then I got to this line. She did things perfectly when enraged. <laughs> and I thought, ah, I've got it. I've got her. I know her. <laughs> and I couldn't stop writing her. <laughs> she did things perfectly when enraged. We know that yeah. kind of person. That's kind of me. You know? yeah. And she's chopping the wood, for instance. Yes. <laughs> yes, her wood chopping. And, and that's, I, you know, that's what Wood Mountain likes about her, too. <laughs> oh, right. You know, and when, when the, the, the piece that's just titled Thwack, yeah. where... He's sitting inside the house trying not to just overwhelming, be overwhelmingly, um, uh, every, every thwack sends a chill through his body and he falls in love as <laughs> <laughs> he hears her chopping wood. But see the the incongruity of that, like, and then also something about the, uh, the image of of him and readers will get to know him as sort of like this, you know, he's a boxer. He's this big mountain of a guy. Um, yeah. The incongruity of him with the baby, like the, the, the baby oh, in yes. the story just completely takes to him. And it, it, so they're all sor sort of like uh, this entire community that you create, including Patrice. It's, they're just so, I don't want to say likable because that just so diminishes the realness and how realistically drawn these characters are. Um, but there, it, there's just something about that, you know, this she did things perfectly when enraged, right? And, and, and you and I get it, 
and Wood gets it. <laughs> uh-huh. And, um, and yes. this is just something that carries her through. It's like she was valedictorian. Um, she takes no guff. Um, she, you know, she perseveres. She fights. She goes and does this really incredibly scary and dangerous thing um, that readers will learn about. Oh, she's looking for her sister. Um, and she's pretty... She's, so she tries to find her sister in an urban environment where she has disappeared. There's, there was a program called Relocation that went along with termination. And what it did was um, to put money, instead of into reservation infrastructure, put money into getting people off the reservation into big cities. This was to take land. There's no question. You know, it was another way of taking land. But you know, the, the, in those times, a lot of people had no other choice and, and followed the posters and the relocation rhetoric down to big cities. And Patrice's sister is one of those people mm-hmm. who disappears. You know, just imagine this. Um, she really didn't, Patrice didn't even really know how to take a cab, how to do much of anything, and she's just thrust into this world. That's she's... partly from my own experience. <laughs> oh, yeah. so I grew up in a little town in North Dakota, and when I left for college, I wasn't scared of um, the work or the social life or whatever. My main fear was that I wouldn't know how to take a cab. Hmm. Um, and I wouldn't know. I knew you had to give some money to the cab driver, but how much? And nobody could tell me because nobody had taken a cab. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. I see. And that was that was my fear. Wow. It's a, yeah, it, it puts me in the mind of, uh, you know, a young person not knowing what to do with Uber. I mean, it's, yeah, it was just like yeah. this strange new world. I mean, even... Uh, the train ride for her and there are these weird tensions about not not feeling like she belongs there or people looking at mm-hmm. her mistreating her um, right that that chapter that that entire section actually um, all of those individual vignettes I think I was holding my breath the entire time until oh. she and would are finally walking back <laughs> through the woods back to um, Turtle Mountain with the baby in tow. Uh, honestly, it um, and I never had the feeling of necessarily like it was going to change Patrice in some irremediable way. It was going to change her, but I just there was this sense of trust with her that's sort of forged early on in the novel. And I'm not real sure where it was coming from. It was just sort of sitting back and waiting for her to find something. And of course, um, it's not Vera, but um, it was still something pretty magical. Well, she also is a person of great uh, loyalty and depth. Again, she has her con. She has more conflicts, mm-hmm. but she. I like that you got that she's to be trusted. She's the one that everything else depends on in their family. Nobody else has a job. 
she's got a secure job, which was a huge thing on the reservation. I mean, this jewel-bearing plant, which still exists, it's under a different name, was this jewel-bearing plant was an amazing uh, development. And my grandfather and tribal chairs before him had worked very hard to get that plant up near the reservation so that they could have some sort of some sort of source of uh, employment. The plant is is the reason that so many people in the town have jobs, and these these women, right. Valentine, and these friends of um, of Patrice, that I felt like I think there could be another novel called I don't know <laughs> Joel Bearing Plant <laughs> that it, that because these characters are so interesting and the the dynamic among uh, the women. Um, yes. You know, and the and the things that they that they're going through, the tonsils, and they're hungry, and they're overworked, and it was it's just those scenes were also. Um, it wasn't like we were getting in in the weeds of the work, and yet we were. And then we come to realize later on in the novel um, how important it is that they're able to see. And Patrice has this issue with her eyes, and. Yeah, it's just it's 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 sort of like um, it's so it's complex the way real life is. It's just uh, so interesting yes. to me. But the plant for me be, just became um, something I maybe I hadn't expected when I first started reading that the plant and what it houses throughout the novel was just going to be so, something kind of beautiful and important for all for this entire community. I don't think that this kind of work is acknowledged or, or really known about. When people think of reservations, people don't think about there being this kind of work. But this was a very this was an, a very real situation, and uh, I did my best to talk to people whose mothers had worked at the plant and who carpooled to the plant. I mean, some of the things I would write. I would find out later that I'd guessed properly, you know, that <laughs> there were these women's groups carpooling to the to the jewel-bearing plant. And um, I wanted to write about it in as much detail as I could because it isn't something that's generally thought of when people think about a reservation. There aren't people going back and forth to work at a factory, right? Mm-hmm. But that's... That is how it was and how it still is. So interesting. I was thinking about earlier today about Patrice as the valedictorian. And, you know, I, I, I sort of considered that she could do just about anything by sheer force of will. But she's so innocent about love, but also kind of willfully defiant about the expectations for her life in that regard about, you know, sort of being like the other girls and, um, you know, making out with a boy or having a relationship or wanting to get married and have kids. And uh, that's an interesting tension with her because, you right. know, two men are in love with her, you know, <laughs> for the most part. And um, and she's just, it's, 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 um, it's just a very interesting quality in her um that add, that that adds that tension for me with her. I really uh, didn't know what was going to happen with her. 
whether they were going to end up together, the one of the men, or mm-hmm. what was going to happen. So she had to make up her own mind, I guess. I, <laughs> I yeah. didn't have that. I didn't have total control over what was going to happen. I knew what was happening with Thomas. Mm-hmm. But Patrice, as I said, announced herself without, I didn't make her up. It's as though she was say, you're going to write about me now, and I'm here. And so I did. I'm so glad. That I... she, right. <laughs> and also Millie, her friend. Oh, I have to ask all you of her about friends. Millie. <laughs> all of her friends. Yeah, Millie uh, Cloud. Yeah. Maybe she, I don't I don't know. If I, they're all my favorites, but <laughs> if I could, they can all be my favorite. Millie Cloud. Um, I read that she's a character based on two real people. Well, there's nobody like her, oh, but there. Yeah. I didn't want it to be thought that there were no uh, female scholars, Ojibwe female scholars, because there were and there are so many female scholars now. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm amazed at the incredible, just the flowering of, of scholarship. But I wanted to write about someone who wasn't quite self-aware as a Native person, but who had diligently done a job that was to end up the most important piece of um, evidence or whatever it needs to be in a hearing, the most important real study that had been done. And that actually is also true. There was a study that helped enormously in uh, persuading Congress that they should not terminate the Turtle Mountain Chippewa. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so interesting. The, the, yeah. The quirks with Millie, and uh, especially in the scenes that she shares with Patrice, because they're so different, but if you look closely, they're kind of similar in interesting ways. But just the, for instance, when Millie's asleep and her foot is kind of sticking out from under the blanket, and it just the, s- details like that, um, and the, you know the the patterns on her clothing and her love of numbers and just she's just a, a fascinating, uh, quirky and fun character for me and yet so important as you say. Um, wanted to ask you a little bit about um, this idea of the these visions that and we talked about Thomas a little bit before with Roderick and and the ghosts, but. The visions that some of these characters have in the book, I think it would be a mistake to say that it's magic realism. People often just want to go to that idea, but I, I don't really think of it that way. What do you want readers to know about the things that, for instance, Pixie and her mother feel um, mm-hmm. in their dreams, or th- you know, these these uh, visions that come to them, or uh, Labat knows in his bones that he feels so strongly, or Uncle Gerald, or, um, or, or even Thomas. How, how do you um, want readers to receive those parts of the novel? I can't say what I want people to actually take away, but I'll just say what was perhaps magical to other people to me is not out of the ordinary I I guess I live in a uh, I, I live in a way that uh, I not only I but 
family, friends, every are, people around me are very susceptible to dream a dream life, a um, a life that takes in the possibility of the unknown. Uh, um, so this to me isn't something magical, but very close to things that people have described to me or that I've experienced. Uh, I think that we don't we don't admit to or we don't often grow up with the capacity to understand and take in our our dream life as pertaining to truth as well. So when I have characters who see things or feel things or even move between experiences of the world that may be thought of as um, not magical, I don't know what another word is, but they they aren't they they aren't uh they they seem very much of a piece to me that these worlds aren't in collision they just move like waves between between the two um or maybe many other worlds i don't know i'm getting a little confusing here. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. I'm following yeah, it perfectly. I, okay. <laughs> I also like that you assign this ineffable, <laughs> hard to pin down thing to animals in the book. I, I thought that was very interesting, and it didn't seem um, contrived or out of place. It seems so necessary that we know what even the horses are thinking, or Edith, oh. the dog, <laughs> Edith. <laughs> This That's right. I didn't Edith. think about that. Um, <laughs> well, Edith and Harry. That also makes sense. I just have I have so much experience with with dogs, horses, animals. Uh, you know that par- partly I didn't know how to write a sex scene, so I just wrote animal these these um, horses and their experience basically from their point of view. It was one of the most enjoyable parts of the book that I wrote. <laughs> so, wow, I'll bet it was fun to write. <laughs> it was fun to write. It, 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 it had the quality for me of taking the book a little bit out of the mundane experience of what it's like to be at a homecoming celebration in a small, small community to this other life uh, that these horses were we're having that they they're really annoyed with each other mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean they may have had some sort of encounter but mostly the mare is very annoyed and the stallion is totally oblivious mm-hmm. but I like this I mean I like this they're, they're an important part of the community teacher's pet you know and uh, they're they're um they're part of that world. And I was thinking about Edith the dog who gives us some uh, insight in a way about Harry and, and, uh, and Vera later on. I'm thinking too, it's, um, there's so many characters in the novel. It's, it is this 
a big community of Juggy and Lewis and Eddie Boy Mink and Jack and Charlo and Figgy and Pokey and Wade, and yet there's not one single character, and, and, and with no exaggeration, that seems superfluous to me. I cannot even imagine these spaces without these very people. I mean, you you are creating this community for us, and it can't just have three people just so the rest of us can keep track of things. But it is just this, you know there's going to be an exchange um, between Thomas and, and somebody else, and we're keeping track of who they are, and they're important, and they're all mm-hmm. different and significant. But I just marvel at how you manage this world that you create and wrangle all of these characters. And and really, they, they're all um, their own person. Um, they're not like these generic people. So what is your, how do you do that? <laughs> how, when you're writing these worlds, um, how do these characters, who maybe aren't the central characters, but they're, they're critical, how do you come up with them? How do, the, if Patrice emerges and says, here I am, and she's, she's an important part of the novel, what about these other figures? Well, every so often there is uh, so an event. And between those times, people get to have their stories, right? But then there is a boxing match, for instance, where everybody is suddenly at the boxing match. And that's a way of structuring a book so that you get people here and there, and then you see them interacting with all with one another and what everybody does or mm-hmm. the little homecoming yeah sequence or um the, the they get you know certain characters get together and then of course at the end get together um but the boxing match there's two of them in mm-hmm. the book mm-hmm. i know uh very little about boxing but Really? I thought you probably know so much about boxing. Oh, no, I really had, you know, I really um, just go in deep to uh, find out everything I can about something Mm. like boxing. But I I, I did know something about it because when I grew up, the Golden Gloves, it was the golden age of boxing, you know, the 50s and 60s. And I was maybe a little kid. but still, I was aware because my uncle was in the Golden Gloves and there were these Golden Glove matches. I would always hear people talking about them. And it was a huge deal. Uh, and also, thanks to my grandfather, I he kept some of his tribal chairman's reports. And in one of the reports... It talked about putting up a boxing card to raise money to go to Washington. That was real. That's how they raised money hmm. to go to Washington and save their reservation. They put up a boxing card of boxers all through the communities surrounding the Turtle Mountains. Wow. I don't know what really happened at the, you know, I don't know who the people actually were who fought. So I got to make all that up. But that event was true. Wow. That's fascinating. Wow. And so um, I know you've spoken before about the importance for you and many others, making sure that Barack Obama was reelected back in 2012. It was very important for you because of the causes that he championed that are very close to you. What are you seeing politically right now um, 
I think there are issues in this novel that emerge, this novel set in the 50s, that are kind of in the moment right now. For example, the, the treatment of Thomas when he was younger, he, he was basically deported um, right. as a Mexican. And also, um, and of course he's not Mexican, this central idea of the usurpation of land. Um, right. So, and we know, you know, the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1846, but mm-hmm. this central idea of usurpation for these characters, and, and then what's happening in, in the United States today, um, what's important to know for those of us who are recognizing something very present and resonant in the novel and what's going on today were were you sort of looking outward when you were creating those sections of the novel was there is there something sort of uh, and obviously it's political but something in the now too for you that's that you that a statement that you want to make about that well let's take that apart a little bit because yes there is however the main thing about now that is so, so so a lot of the same issues are there but the main thing about now is the degraded forms of chaos that we are at all times operating within and this is something new but it sort of take i think it takes advantage of some myth making and one of the myths is of course that America was somehow great in the 1950s. Was that true for everyone? And that was my question when I started this book. Obviously, I saw that it was a disaster for many people and that this idea of making America great again somehow did not have a basis. We, were, we have been great when we have been good. And that was, that was not happening for many people in the 1950s. So that's one of the connections. But aside from that, I, uh, that, that part where um, Thomas and his friend were following the harvests uh, down to Mexico and we're going to stay in Texas, but there was, at the very time that my grandfather was uh, he, were doing the same thing, he ended up in Mexico. So there were these mass deportations all the time. And he, uh, I don't know if he got caught up in the actual deportation, but it was at the same time. And I know that he ended up working farther down in Mexico for a while before coming back. Uh, so some of it is I, I pieced together uh, through just looking at newspapers and all historical writings. But yes, it's certainly you know, it's connected to the present. Everything is in that book. But also, you know, what is connected 
I think the fact of decency, the fact that there really are decent people, and we tend to forget or not be aware or lose hope and lose faith, that there are decent people. And I wanted to write about the innate decency that people do have and make heroes out of people whose lives are in many ways very quiet. Oh, Louise, thank you so much for talking to me about this amazing book. Thank you, Yvette. I really appreciate your close reading, your questions, and um, the chance to talk to your listeners. Louise Erdrich is the author of The Night Watchman. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 